0: Listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety: Yours and theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now, your host, Steve Cuss. Friends, as I've mentioned several times before, when I started this podcast, it wasn't just to give you tools and help you name and notice the triggers that go on under the surface in your life. There was also a lot of self-interest in the podcast. I simply wanted to talk to some really interesting people, people I had read or known about for years. It seemed like a great excuse to have a chance to meet them in person or or online. And so when I began the podcast, I, I created a spreadsheet and I had about 80 names of people that I just thought, man, if they would come on the show, wouldn't that be really something to get to learn from them? Today's guest is one of those names Uh, Today, we're featuring the Reverend Dr. Mark D. Roberts. I first learned of Mark when I was a brand new lead pastor, and I was on the hunt for people who had one foot in the church world and one foot in the academic world. I've always been deeply grateful for pastors who are academics or for academics who love the church, and Mark definitely fits that bill. He's authored multiple books. His commentary on Ephesians is still one of my go-to books when I'm preaching through Ephesians. But also, he's held all these different leadership roles. He's been an associate pastor at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church. He was lead pastor at the Irvine Presbyterian Church in California. He also did a stint running the world-famous Laity Lodge Retreat Center in Texas. And he currently serves as the executive director for the Max Dupree Center for Leadership at Fuller Seminary. Mark has a PhD in New Testament from Harvard University. He's a fascinating human being. We covered a wide range of topics. I began by simply asking Mark why he decided to go into pastoring instead of purely academic work.
1: Well, you know, when I was in in grad school, at first I thought I would be a professor, and academic, and that's what I was being trained for. But I realized when I was in grad school that, well, let's put it that way. Most of my colleagues would say to me things like, oh, I had the most amazing day on Saturday, 12 hours in the library with no interruption. And I would think that's not an amazing day. That's like, uh, for me, it would be maybe eight hours in the library and then four hours being with people or doing things. So I began to realize I can do the academic work, but I don't know that that's what's best for me. Nevertheless, I thought I was going academic direction. And while I was still completing my uh, my dissertation, I went uh, full time on a on the staff of the church I grew up with uh, in Southern California, First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood. I was their college director and later I became the associate pastor of education. And in that context, I started bringing my my education and learning, into people's lives in a way that served them and their their deeper needs and I really sensed a strong call to continue to do that so really during that period of time began to believe that I was not going to be a full-time academic but really put more of my time into the pastoral world uh with still a strong academic context and connection and and, and background. And so I served as an associate pastor at the church in Hollywood for seven years before being called then to be the senior pastor of Irvine Presbyterian Church in Southern California. And that was really, it was a great church and a great run. Uh, Many in the Irvine community, Irvine's a very highly educated community, so they were appreciative of my scholarship but for me, it was always about taking the, the truth of scripture and, and the deeper truth of God and finding a way for that to become very real to people, not only in their thinking, but in their living and in their relationships and in our life as a church. And so I, I really loved that sort of connection. Now, I, I got to be a, an adjunct professor. At Fuller in in New Testament, which was really my, my strength at that time, so I got to do some academic work. And but uh, I've always kind of lived in between, lived in that in between place between scholarship and sort of daily life, and and actually I still do. So it was uh, it, it was often a, a stretch because. I am by nature a very uh, intellectual person, and pastoral work and and life and marriage and parenting is hugely about the heart. So you could say in one sense, I've been on a uh, a long journey to become a more balanced person, mind and heart, uh, and pastoring was certainly part of that.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, the two worlds you're in is, is the academic world and the people world or the pastoring world, but of course, the third world is the leadership world. Tell us what it was like to move from an associate pastor role in one church to the lead chair in another church. How was that move for you? You know, it's 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 funny. I've thought about that here
1: and there, especially since I've been focusing more on leadership in the last few years. Um, on the one hand, it was very freeing because I was able to be the one who was making the calls and you know steering the ship. If you were, uh, I mean, in the Presbyterian system, we have elders that work with us, but I was the leader of the elders. And so it was freeing. <laughs> On the other hand, it was terrifying because <laughs> I was the guy who was steering the ship. And yeah. uh, as much as I was glad to do that, I also felt the weight of that. Uh, and and another thing I realized in myself, so I when I was at First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, Lloyd Ogilvie was a pastor there, an amazing preacher and leader, became the chaplain of the Senate later in his life. I mean, an amazing example. Oh, I,
0: he's a legend. I...
1: I have learned more from him than any person in the world outside of my own family. So he, it was an extremely important relationship. What I found is on the one hand, I, I did things as he did. I mean, I, I learned through imitation and did that. And in in a sense, it was a kind of an apprenticeship when I worked with him, but I also found early on that I was also reacting to some things that he did overreacting. You might say, so for example, Lloyd was an amazing preacher. He told amazing stories, um, almost bigger than life stories. Early on in my preaching, I re- by react to that by sort of taking my stories and and under telling them really like sort of shrinking them down. Like I didn't want to be the exaggerating guy. So I and and I realized after a while, wait a minute, I, I'm short changing the communication here because I'm in reaction to the person who at the same time has had more. To do with shaping me than anybody in the world, so it, 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 there was a process of learning to think uh, more, um, uh, just more creatively and critically about how I, who I am, as a leader, so so that I could be who I'm supposed to be. Never going to be Lloyd Ogilvy, but learn so much from him, and uh, and, and to this day, uh, I, I continue to sort of, uh, I often think about him. Uh, He's now with the Lord, but uh, he was a great, great mentor. So it was a a, a shift to go from a supporting role to a leading role. Mostly, I loved it. Every now and then, it was terrifying.
0: Yeah. I I have a thesis that in order to to thrive long-term as a leader, you have to be able to forgive yourself for mistakes. Oh, man, yes. And, uh, and I don't mean the kind of mistakes that should have you removed as a pastor. Right, right. I just mean well-meaning leadership mistakes. Would you be willing to share a couple you oh. made that were hard to forgive yourself for? Oh, absolutely. And, and, but let me just say, so two days ago, my
1: closest colleague at the DePriest Center in Fuller and I were having a long conversation about this very thing, because we are both people who find it very difficult when we make mistakes. I'm not saying we don't do it, but it, it, it really... Uh, uh, I think it thre- threatens, well, I'll speak for myself now, that when I make a mistake, even if it's not a huge one, I, I just, I feel shame. So not just yeah. I feel bad. I feel like I, I'm not good. And right. I've had to sort that out. So early on, um, I I can't even remember exactly the mistake I made. But it was in the context of some sort of leadership thing. And I think I had committed to do something and then I hadn't done it. And I, I had a meeting with my elders, and uh, one of my elders brought this up. And she said, you'd said you'd done this, you would do this, you hadn't done it. And I said, you know what, you're right. Uh, and, of course, now I'm feeling terrible. I said, I'm right, I forgot, I didn't do it, I made a mistake. You said, but you, but, so she comes back and says, but you said you were going to do this, and you didn't do it. And I said, I know, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake. And then she kept coming at me, like, but you, and fi- so it was like the worst case scenario, right? Because now this is proving it. I mean, she thinks I'm a total fake and a lousy pastor. Finally, I was able to say, I, I, I blew it, you know, can you forgive me? And that sort of took her up short. So my mistake was just, I, I had, I was doing probably overcommitted, forgot to do something. The thing I realized in that conversation is her inability to let me fail was mostly about her. Now I didn't say that in the context of that right. meeting, <laughs> yes, but I realized right. okay, this is this is her stuff, uh, yet yeah, but it's touching my stuff. And and partly to know that if that when I make a mistake, I just feel I feel terrible about myself. To know that about myself doesn't necessarily uh, make the feelings better, but at least now I'm less governed by them. So I can say, yeah, I know I'm feeling this, uh, but I can make choices to, to do the right thing. Like admit I've made a mistake, like apologize, like reach out to somebody perhaps that I've wronged. And so I, I'm not governed by those feelings in the same way I once was. I, I don't have to be defensive and perhaps in the way I once was, uh, but, uh, it's, you know, for those of us who are performers and in a sense, I think I am a performer and, and we get a lot of, you know, affirmation and, and we, we connect that up with our sense of self and our ego. And then when the performance doesn't go well, you know, that that says our self is no good. And, and that's been I'll admit, I mean, I've been working on this well in my professional life. I've been working on this 40 years.
0: Yeah, I think you've actually raised a a challenge that I think is unique to church leaders. I'm not sure that faith leaders who are not in the church wrestle with this, and that is the identity as God's child and the vocation as God's employee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you manage that tension when you were a pastor? Well,
1: I I mean, so a couple thoughts come to mind. One is when one is a professional Christian, if you will, it, 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 I found it at first difficult to nurture my relationship with the Lord as his beloved child. I, I You know, it was so, like pastors are sort of famous for this, but like everything in life becomes an illustration. So rather than living it, you're like collecting it. And, uh, you know, by God's grace uh, o- over time, I think, that wasn't as much of a struggle for me. Along the way, I had a spiritual director who helped me a lot. I was in a small group of people that, where we could really get real about our faith and who we were. And, and so all of that that helped me there be, a, be a, a child of God, not just an employee of God, if you will. The other place, honestly, where I, I really struggled that was in, uh, in personnel-related issues when I was the boss so what do I do with a brother in Christ who is not performing? Now, uh, do you know and, and and we've done all the things we could do to help this person improve and it's not there. And in any organization the answer would be well that person has to be let go. But he's a brother in Christ. He's part of the family of the church. I mean, how can I fire a brother in Christ? And and I I admit that was that was never easy. Uh Part of what helped me, a couple things. One was just a really strong sense of my calling in that place to steward the health and the life of the church. So it wasn't just to protect somebody from an unhappy experience. But the other thing that was huge was to have people with me, some of my elders. So in tough decisions or places like that, uh, it, it was great to have wise people with me. In fact, in one case, I had such a difficult time. Uh, Working through a, a, a situation where somebody had to leave, that finally my elder said, look, you, you are so emotionally attached. You care so much for him. You, you, you got to really, why don't you back out? Just let us do this because this is killing you. So uh, I'm not saying I mastered it. I still wrestle with those things. But, and I think in one sense, we ought to, you know, the most of the, you know, this, I mean, most of the stuff of leadership it's not like you become a master. Anytime I see a book that's like mastering leadership, I just laugh. Like, who who would claim that? It's a it's a lifelong learning process, isn't
0: it? Well, and I'm glad you mentioned it because I have a Master of Divinity. Oh. A, a point <laughs> by which I try to remind people that I have Master Divinity. It's remarkable. Yes, yes.
1: There was yeah. a. I, I wrote a, a commentary years ago on Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and it was in the Communicators Commentary Series. And then for some reason they rebranded the series, and it became Mastering the Old Testament. And it just it just <laughs> bugged me because I think I did a good job on Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, but in yeah. no way would I have said, yeah. I, yes, I've mastered these books.
0: It's <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. it's um, a- a- Another thing I think is fascinating, Mark, you served in that lead chair for 16 years, and uh, I've been at the church in the lead chair for 14 mm-hmm. years, so I'm, I'm sneaking up on you for tenure, and I'm in a season right now By right now, I mean probably the last five years, where I keep running into myself. Uh, When I first came to the church, it felt so good to help clean up someone else's mess. Yes. (laughs) Now, I keep running into my own messes, and um, it's very humbling to realize how the well-being of the church is so heavily dependent on my leadership growth. Where did you keep running into yourself as a leader over 16 years? Well, uh, I can actually answer that one
1: pretty easily because I've thought a lot about that. So this is related to our earlier conversation about performance and and all. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty good technical leader. I'm pretty good at solving problems and coming up with solutions, creative solutions. And I think, especially early on in my tenure in the church, my staff and my elders recognized that. So I was the person who had the answers and and the person who had the vision. And even though my theology says we're really to do this as the body of Christ, I think in a way I was, um, more important than that theology would support. And not because I think I was full of pride. It was more a sense of, Hey, this is what I do and this is appreciated and they need me. And and, and so there were some really good things that happened out of that. But by the time I got to where you are in my, my 14th year, I was really struggling with um, a, a, an overdependence on me and my leadership, especially as the church had grown and the ministry had grown, uh, that I, I couldn't be, not only could I not be all of what I had been, but I really realized that that really wasn't as healthy for the life of the church but everything was uh, built so much around me in, in certain ways that I, I think I was so that's where I was stumbling over myself what in one sense it made me a very effective pastor early on. Later on less so. And it was a, yeah.
0: it was a struggle. Yeah. So then you moved to the laity Lodge in Texas, uh, a famous... Retreat Center. I have not had the privilege of going there yet, but some of my most favorite musicians in the world are there on a regular basis. Ashley Cleveland, yes. Andy Gullahorn. Yes. Um, tell us about that transition. What was it like to move from leading a church to leading a retreat center for not just yeah. pastors, right? No. It's for any follower of Jesus. Yes. Well, uh, true. And, and
1: actually many who are really not following Jesus. Lady Lodge does a great job of welcoming people Wherever they are, and mm. making it a safe place for folks who uh, who aren't believers, though it's a believing context, and and so mm-hmm. they do a great job with that. Yeah, that was a huge shift. I never would have imagined when I was pastoring that I would have ended up uh, leading a retreat center and a and a renewal ministry and some of the other things that we were doing at Lady Lodge. And uh, there's a long story there of sort of God really interrupting my expectations for my life and learning to trust him. My kids were just young teenagers, and I I just thought it was absolutely crazy to move kids at that time of life. So there were many things I had to surrender, but went to Lady Lodge and into this new role. Now, I say new role. It was a new context. In many ways, I continued to do as, as I had been doing in terms of caring for people and and uh, uh, creating or, or helping to create context in which people could encounter God in worship and in teaching. Uh, I I transitioned from a preacher, I didn't do a lot of preaching when I was at Lady Lodge, to a devotions writer, and started writing uh, devotions basically every day, and I've been doing that now for, you know, almost 12 years. Uh, and so some of the things I I, I was doing were were very similar. But the difference was, uh, one of the things that happens at Lady Lodge is that because it's a, it's a safe place and a beautiful place and a quiet place, people often are open to God or open about themselves in ways that are really quite unusual in this day. That has a whole lot to do with the the way the founder of Lady Lodge, Howard Butt had, um, had led with a very open life and open heart. And so, though we don't, we would never have uh, forced anybody to share anything they weren't comfortable with, by creating such a safe place, uh, people would open up. So, part of the, the real joy of being at Lady Lodge was seeing God do some really amazing things in people's lives. Uh, the, the, thing, the kind of things that can happen in a retreat context are harder to do that in daily life. And at the same time, then through the devotions that I was writing, we were able to supply to people. I I could also help them to continue to nurture what God had done in the experience out, out in the canyon where Lady Lodge is.
0: Did your own pace of life shift, Mark, as a leader of a retreat center?
1: Yes, quite a bit. So... You know, I had been for 16 years, but really for my time at Hollywood, too, so for almost 25 years, I mean, working every Sunday and, uh, you know, having a many night meetings. Uh, pastors tend to have a lot of freedom in principle, but then a lot of work to do. So all of a sudden I, I had, I mean, I probably was probably leading retreats once or twice a month, but all of a sudden, when it came to Sunday morning, I I was free to go to church with my wife and family, and that was really uh, that was quite a change. Uh, the uh, one of the reasons I felt God wanted me to go to Lady Lodge was that I had relatively few night meetings, which meant I need I could be home with my teenage uh, children a lot more than when I was a pastor, and I was glad for that time. Uh, and so it was It was just a different pacing. It took a while to get used to it because some of my professional but also personal disciplines had really been structured around my pastoral life. So when I was a pastor, I'd tend every Thursday morning into early afternoon to write my sermon, and then I'd go to a place where I would walk and pray. And that was, you know, pray about work, but just pray. Uh, when I moved, all of a sudden that pace was interrupted. And it really, it it took some real work to establish some new patterns of spiritual life that would fit in that different context. So, um, so, you know, I can say in some ways it was a continuation of what I'd done and the use of my gifts, but in a different context, in a different way, working with some fantastic people. I, I hope you do get to Lady Lodge. I mean, you mentioned their musicians and, and Ashley and and uh, I mean amazing people amazing speakers but also the the staff and the leaders at Lady Lodge are are fantastic I mean one of the things I love about it when I said creating a safe space so in the, in the first gathering of a retreat whoever's leading the retreat one of the things that that person will say is you know we have an agenda for this retreat but we do not have an agenda for you
0: mm-hmm. so if
1: you, you need to get here what you need and if that means, you, you you need to sleep, and you sleep in, and you miss breakfast. Don't worry about it. Come on into the kitchen. We'll fix something when you're ready. Mm, you know, if good. you need to miss a meeting and just go. Didn't you guys? You guys did people's laundry for them, if I remember well, right. I read that somewhere. <laughs> Not officially. This, so this is about <laughs> this is about serving people. So it's really a fun story. The, the folk who work at Lady Lodge deep commitment to hospitality. Now we don't ordinarily do laundry. We have laundry. Uh, machines if people wanted to use them. But uh, one of the men who didn't uh, understand that at a retreat came to w- one of our hostesses in in our office and said, you know, here's my laundry and, you know, I'd like to have it tomorrow. And <laughs> she amazing. didn't miss a beat. She just said, okay, thank you for, for giving me this. We'll have it for you tomorrow. And yeah. she just did it. There wasn't a staff to do the laundry. She just went and got it done. And the next day he came in and she gave it to him. I, I think to this day, unless he listens to this podcast, he'll have no idea. Yeah.
0: But, That's the best part of the story for me is she didn't say, hey, by the way, this is not something right. we do. Nope. It was, oh, it was so
1: much about doing whatever we could do to serve people where they were, to meet them where they were. And that's that's part of what made it such an exceptional thing for me to be a part of, to be on that team, and then just to see what people experienced.
0: Yeah. Yeah, now you're at the Dupree Center for Leadership, right. the, the wonderful, I think, what, 1960s, if I recall, is when the Dupree Center got going. And my understanding is the primary focus is um, Christian leaders in the marketplace. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes.
1: So we're named after Max Dupree.
0: <clears throat> Max yeah. went
1: to be with the Lord uh, a little bit ago, but long. Yeah, what and, a legend. The, yeah, amazing life and leadership. So the, the main piece of his leadership was working for and ultimately being the CEO of Herman Miller, the, the, the one of the world's most uh, successful furniture companies, major office furniture and other kinds of furniture. And so Max had this strong marketplace experience, but he also was a deep man of faith. Uh, active in church, many different organizations served on the board of trustees at Fuller Seminary for something like 40 years, which is why the Depree center is, is actually at Fuller Seminary. But Max was also a, uh, a great mentor of leaders and then a writer. And he wrote a number of books, his book. So his book, leadership is an art. Yeah. It was published around 1988. So that's a long time ago. Uh, I happen to know that it still sells at an amazing rate. And the reason I know that is Max had determined that all the residuals from that book would go to the Depree Center. So now, you know, so many 30 years later, uh, we are that book is still selling and mm-hmm. it, it speaks to Max's wisdom and his humility and and his deep faith. So what Max was about was living his faith in in every part of life, and that's where we are in the Dupree Center is to serve leaders in the marketplace. But one of the ways we do that is really to in, encourage them to to lead as Christians, even if they're in a secular environment. We're not we're not saying give sermons or you know, necessarily pray prayer, prayers in the board meeting if that's not appropriate. But what does it mean to do everything you do uh, for the Lord? Um, and uh, so Max was really our inspiration for that. And we're, we're honored to bear his name.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mark, I'm, I'm the maestro of the convoluted questions. I'm going to try one on you. Um, I was listening to a sermon that John Ortberg gave to his congregation in Menlo. It would have been three or four years ago. And he said the most striking thing to them. It's really stuck with me. He said to his congregation, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I used to think that God led a pastor to a church for what the church needed to learn from the pastor. I've come to discover that God often leads a pastor to a church for what the pastor needs to learn from the church. I thought it was remarkable. And he then proceeded to share what the Menlo congregation has taught him, what God has taught him. I think it would be really neat just to hear from you, what did you learn from your time at Hollywood, uh, what did you learn from your time at Irvine, Laity, and Dupree? Just those, if you could give it. And this it was convoluted. Yeah, a brief, a brief.
1: Well, that's a brief, yeah, because I, well, I, I'll tell you. So what I what I learned at Hollywood. Now mm-hmm. I grew up in that church, and what I learned there, perhaps most of all, is that being a Christian is fundamentally about your relationship with Christ and growing in Christ. And at, at Hollywood, that was strongly through the teaching and the study of scripture. But the Christ-centeredness of that church was was and still is true. And that sort of became a part of me and my DNA. And so I've, Lord willing, I've carried that wherever I've, I've gone. Uh, I think the other thing I, I learned at Hollywood was I mean, Hollywood is a very diverse community in so many ways. It still is. And, you know, if we are in Christ, then we can really work at being the body of Christ together, even if we're different in our politics, to some extent in our theology, in our um, socioeconomic status. I mean, at Hollywood on every Sunday today, we will have people who are literally homeless folk who live in in the Intense outside of the church, and we will have people who are extremely well off. And you know, so that was a great thing at Irvine. So, one of the things I learned at Irvine that continues on greatly in my work today, I learned from the members of my congregation who took their faith seriously in their work what that was about. I mean, that really was where I got tutored in the thing that I do so much in today in terms of faith and work integration. I mean, yes, I, I bring a certain theological ex, uh, understanding and, and, you know, some broader experience now, but I learned, I, I remember a meeting I had early on as a pastor with the guy who was literally running Lexus, That was, he was in charge of Lexus, and, you know, I asked him, just, so how, does your faith connect to your work at all, and I really wasn't expecting much, and he said, oh, absolutely. And he started telling me all the ways his faith mattered to his work, including, yeah, I pray every day on, the, on my drive into work. He had a long drive in Southern California. And, and I pray. And he started listing out all the different sectors of his company that he prayed for. And honestly, at that point, I'm thinking, wow, does God really care about your about Lexus dealers? Well, now I know, of course, God cares about it. But I learned from him. I mean, I'd never heard anybody talk like that. So I learned a ton from my members about what it is to live your faith in the world. At Lady Lodge, you know, I, I had, um, man, I learned so much there. Uh, I, I'll mention one thing. So I, uh, Lady Lodge was founded by a man named Howard Butt Jr. Uh, he was, uh, had been in the HEB Grocery Company, which in, in well, that's his family business. In Texas, the largest grocery company in the state. And he'd gone from the business world into really focusing on the work at Lady Lodge. Uh, Howard was an amazing man. One of the things I learned from Howard, I mentioned earlier his willingness to open up his own life in such a way that gave people the freedom to do that. That was huge. But the other thing I'd say about Howard is he would observe and pay attention to people who were serving him in some context, and he would thank them. And and so I mean like a, a, a waiter in a restaurant or... Uh, the, the, the person who cleans the bathroom, the men's room at the airport. Howard was always seeing people and seeing their work and then saying, you know, thank you for the way you've served us today. Thank you. And, and um, I, I don't think I've ever been stingy when it comes to gratitude, but I don't think I've been nearly as generous with gratitude as Howard was. And it was so, it was really transformational to me to watch him and then learn from him. I I think and hope I am a much, uh, it's not just that I am more grateful and feel it, but much freer and and more eager to communicate that.
0: I'm just gonna jump in, Mark, before we get to your lesson from Dupree, because I read your article on that, on Howard and his capacity. I really liked the way you framed it very well for us just now that it wasn't just about thanking someone, it was about someone feeling seen by him. What I appreciated is how you pointed out your own proclivity maybe to be an introvert or less socially overt. And yet that you're like, I could do that. I I appreciated that. I I have a uh, a resident, uh, an intern who works for me right now, and we have different wiring. I'm more naturally uh, outgoing. He's more reserved. And we were having this exact conversation yesterday about the power of a minute or five minutes just to help someone feel seen. Mm. And it's, it's, transcends personality and wiring anyone can do this well it and I like I say I've learned I, I had I don't know if
1: I in the thing you read I shared the story of of thanking a person who worked at a coffee place in in Cambridge Massachusetts that I'd hung out with this uh, older woman who had she just was so polite and kind and you know I, I hadn't it really brought that to consciousness even though I'd experienced it until I was away at a conference. I was talking to somebody else from the same area, and we ended up both talking about this woman and how much she'd mattered to us. So I thought to myself, okay, next time I'm up there, I'm going to tell her this. And I I went and went to that place, and she was working. So I said, before I order, I I just want to share with you something. So I said, you know, I was in New York, met somebody from up here. We started talking about you and how much the way you serve us really has made a difference in our life. And literally the person in line behind me says, yeah, she, she, you really do make a difference. And she got big tears in her eyes. And, and I realized, you know, she probably doesn't right. get to hear that very much. So she gets to be a firm. Meanwhile, I'm just, I'm feeling good. wonderful to be able to be. So it's so easy to do, but it requires exactly yeah, Just That's paying good.
0: attention okay yeah let's finish up with dupree i mean obviously that's a current context for you
1: <laughs> yes boy i tell you so my work at the dupree center has been challenging in new ways in that i've basically when i when i inherited the dupree center there although i've been around for many years there wasn't much left to it so it was really almost like starting from scratch to build something and to figure out how we can fund it and what we should produce and how we do that and so though I, I'm operating within Fuller Seminary and there are certain kinds of support that I get for that it's really been a very entrepreneurial journey. Um, I know you like to talk about anxiety and I would say this has been by far the most anxiety producing job I've ever had because I feel so much individual responsibility and certain things have along the way felt so tenuous so what have i learned i mean the biggest piece is that god is trustworthy and i still have a long way to go to learn to trust him more
0: Friends, I first learned these tools of family systems theory when I served as a trauma chaplain. Many times a day I would walk into a room and help people navigate what was really the worst moments of their life. What was most surprising to me was how my own anxiety would bubble up and sometimes get in the way of my ability to be fully present to people and fully present to God. And fast forward almost 25 years now, I use these tools of family systems theory and uh, every day in my leadership. There are many of the reasons why I'm not only surviving in leadership, but but thriving. And for the last year or so, I've been going all around the country and even internationally and teaching workshops so people can interact with this material. And they're always wanting more when I'm done. I usually just do a couple of hours, sometimes a day. That's why on March 10th and 11th, coming up, I'm hosting a two-day interactive workshop where I'll give you all of these tools that I've been trained in. And not only will you learn about them, but you'll actually begin to put some of them into practice right during the two days. It's not a conference. It won't be where you're just sitting and listening. You'll actually be at a round table and you'll be workshopping some of these tools right there in the moment. So you'll come away after two days having already experienced some of these things that we teach on the podcast. I know we're all very busy. We have a lot on our plates. We have a lot of opportunities for growth. But that's why I'm inviting you to sacrifice a couple of days of your time You can get tickets and more information at stevecusswords.com. If you order tickets, be sure to use the promo code PODCAST for a little discount. I, I know you've probably been... Losing sleep for nights, knowing that the gauntlet of anxiety questions is coming. But if you're feeling well rested, we'll go for it. (laughs) I'd I'd be glad. (laughs) Uh, Question number one. I think we'll do six questions today, Mark. Question number one. What kind of uh, leadership situations generate anxiety in your life? We don't need an exhaustive list. Just give us a couple. Well, I'll... I'll tag on to what I just said about my work at
1: Dupree Center, but that's been true throughout my life. So uh, financial insecurity, okay. not not just for me, but for the organization I serve. I, I, when I was a pastor, you know, sometimes we'd be coming to, to the end of the year and our our income hadn't been as strong as we'd hoped. And they, There'd be many sleepless nights for me, again, not worrying about me, but thinking, oh my gosh, if we have to lay people off, I, I, that would be terrible. And so it, it's often a, a stewardship of the organization and especially care for the people. So a, a, a lot of anxiety associated with um, with financial responsibility. Um, I, I think the other... I mean, another significant source of anxiety for me is, and it, I mentioned this earlier, but uh, I have appreciated greatly in my life uh, ways in which people have affirmed me or approved of me. And if I disappoint people, uh, fall short of their expectations, and that is that can create a lot of anxiety for me. So both the fear that I will do that and then if it happens, I can feel. So, I mean, I mean, an example would be, as you know, I write these uh, daily devotions for the DePriese Center, Life for Leaders. And just today, we're in December, I'm, I'm beginning to deal with the passage in Ephesians that deals with slaves and masters. Uh, I, I approach that text with a great deal of trepidation and nervousness not because I'm worried about the historical interpretation but because that's such a a painful issue for our country and for many people it's a deeply deeply personal thing even today and I I want to do justice to the text it won't surprise me if some one of my readers or more are, are not happy with me and so I can feel anxious about that uh it doesn't stop me now from being faithful, but the thought that I might do something that's going to get make people unhappy, uh, or disapprove, uh, or even hurt people, that that is worrisome to yeah. me, and that will keep me up. When
0: when you are concerned about um, people's impression of you, just give us uh, one insight into what's going on in your brain. Like what are you thinking?
1: Well, I mean, partly. I, I don't I, I, I mean if I do something that hurts a person e- even if w- one can argue that I didn't do anything wrong I, I still don't want to do that I, I don't want to make people unhappy and or worse uh, and that that's part of it and and part of it is fear that if I let somebody down it, 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 it may be that I because I've done something wrong and I I you know we have talked before about, you know, mistakes are something that, uh, I know I make and will make, but when I make them, there's a part of me that, you know, some little voice in me that says, aha, see, you're really not any good after all. Uh, and you know, the irony of that is that didn't come from my parents. My parents did not put that on me. I, I, have had, I put that on myself as near as I can tell, uh, so there's the anxiety that comes from what if I didn't do this quite right? What if I didn't communicate as well as I might or was as sensitive? And, and uh, so it's anxiety about uh, feeling diminished in my own eyes, feeling that I'm
0: not good, not faithfully stewarding
1: what God's entrusted to me. Yeah, thank you for that.
0: Um, my experience is because leaders and pastors tend to be others-focused, we can sometimes be the last one in the room to know we're not well how do you know when you're not well oh man so
1: i, I mean i what you just described is me and now so for example if i'm mostly a very even-keeled person i think most people would, who know me would say that i rarely get upset once in a while i do and if i'm in a meeting and something's happening that's making I'm getting upset. So, I mean, so the the physical, my heart rate's increasing and, you know, there's what happens. It's often very likely that I'm not aware this is happening at the time. So I'm not saying to myself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm getting upset here. I need to uh, do whatever I need to do. I at least need to be aware. And, And so what I will sometimes do is speak in a way that is... Ill advised. Now, I don't cuss people out or, you know, I, I mean, there's certain th- I, but I will be, uh, I, I will speak too strongly. I will uh, perhaps exaggerate. Yeah, You'll have uh, an I,
0: overreaction, Yeah.
1: Example. And, and uh, so, in fact, I just had one of these a couple weeks ago and I worked it through with my colleague, and we're in a really good place. But one of the things I needed to say to her is I, I will continue to work on. Um, me and that part of me is knowing what's happening with me emotionally. Uh, I'm also helped by um, the uh, you, you know there there are different leadership folk who who uh, uh, Ronald Heifetz for example you know talks about a leader needs to get on the balcony. And and partly he talks about the leader getting on the balcony to look at systems and organizations and what's going, but he also has a lot to say about getting on the balcony to look at yourself as a leader. And so that's part of the discipline that I'm working on uh, in my own life and in, in prayer. Can I get up on the balcony in a sense, looking down on me on the dance floor and say, now what's, what's going on with me? So I'm still in that learning process.
0: Yeah, very good. That's a great answer. Um, one of the one of the systems that family systems theory teaches us to observe is the over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic between people. It's very rare to meet a leader who's an under-functioner. So I'm going to presume, Mark, that you are a classically an over-functioner. And systems theory teaches us that that is an evidence of systemic anxiety. Do you have a story where you were in a relationship with an under-functioner? Of course, we don't need names. And what did you do to overfunction? Oh, jeez. Yeah. So this is what I do,
1: and if especially if it's somebody that I I am um, managing. Uh, now I think a good manager is going to be supportive and encouraging and all those things. But a good manager is also going to help somebody deal with hard things in their life, their work. Uh, What I have found myself doing at times is protecting people. Uh, So, for example, in the church in Irvine, a certain staff person uh, who was doing some really good work, but also not doing really good work in some areas. And I was getting quite a bit of criticism of that person. uh, I didn't. I just didn't pass that along. I protected that person from the things that he really needed to hear, uh, and as a result, of course, things got worse. So, yeah, my my tendency to want to be supportive—I mean, mostly that's a really good thing—but sometimes then I, you know, I overfunction, I, I ramp it up, and uh, uh, don't let people. Uh, bear the responsibility that they need to bear. Don't let people hear the bad news that they need to hear. Uh, or I'll step in and I'll just, I don't know, I'll fix the stuff that they haven't done right rather than let them, you know. Pay their de- own price. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, I, I'm I'm somewhat better at that. You know, I, I mentioned that I write these devotions, and every now and then um, uh, our editor will not catch a mistake and only within the last couple of years will I now write to her email her and say hey would you please fix a mistake for most of my life I would have simply gone in and fixed it for her partly because it's efficient but partly because you know I don't want to
0: you don't want to be that guy people. that's so, always pointing yeah.
1: things out so yes yeah. so over functioner yes I'll I'll uh, I'll own that very good
0: uh, I think another gift of systems theory, you mentioned the balcony and, and uh-huh. the capacity to look at a system. Um, one of the signs of anxiety in a group is when a group moves into a chronic, recurring, predictable pattern so that when it happens again, you're not surprised. It's, 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 and that would be what Bowen and then I think more famously Friedman would say shows that a, a system is stuck. Mm-hmm. Where have you seen that at play? Stuck system. Do it. Do it the, the the this would help yeah. you out, Mark. I'm always mindful that I'm yeah. I'm asking you, and then I'm I'm coaching. It's a, it's an unfair dynamic. Uh, it's all right. Uh, but one of the signs would be when the solution to the problem is more of the same or try harder. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. You know. And and
0: and that's actually. Um,
1: close to the things Heifetz talks about, that there are certain certain things that just are not going to be technical fixes. It's really a deeper, adaptive problem. And uh, so I so I would say, and I've, I've sort of mentioned this before, but the the system that I inherited when I went became pastor of the church at Irvine, the former pastor had been extremely strong, one might say almost autocratic, really dynamic and excellent leader, planted a church. I mean, he did a great work, but it was a very pastor centered model. And I, I mentioned earlier that I went into that system and just fit into it. And in time, we became stuck because we were limited by my bandwidth, by my wisdom, and uh, it, it was really hard to do the work of trying to get that particular system unstuck, which in that case would mean Um, my, my elders are, uh, bearing the load they ought to bear and I'm not protecting them from painful things or difficult things.
0: So I'm on a lifelong journey to figure out, um, when do I feel most fully loved? So that's the question I'd like to close with Mark in your life. When do you feel most fully loved Mm -hmm. as a human being? That's a great question.
1: Well, so let me give t- two different answers. They're pretty much really the same ultimately. But I mean, in, in a human scale, I, I feel greatly loved when I'm with my family. I'm blessed with a wonderful wife and two children who love me and care for me and put up with me. And, and uh, uh, so there will be times when. Uh, and, and and I also have a really wonderful extended family too. But there are times with my family where I I feel uh, amazingly loved, and uh, you know it's a great gift. We're coming up on Christmas when we're taping this, and and we I'm going to be together with my my uh, wife and children, and and you know so I, I that will be one of those times, you know, and and that's one of the ways God loves me. Obviously, it's through my my family, and I I believe that. There have been particular times in my life when I have felt deeply and in a really a transforming way, the love of God. Uh, often those have been in really hard times. I, I say that with some trepidation because I'd say, oh, of course, I want to know God's love. But then I think, well, that usually comes when life is hard. Uh there have been times when I, yeah. so circling back to things we've said about mistakes, when I've made some mistakes and have carried that so heavily and have come to understand God's forgiveness, if it was a sin or if it was a mistake in judgment but not a sin, God's acceptance and that I am loved, uh, those, that makes a big difference i i, I have a, a, a spiritual director in my life these days who uh, i think he'd be very happy with this question you're asking because he, he works very hard on helping me to really uh, internalize god's love you know my theology of god's love is pretty good I, I mean i think I'm pretty close to what scripture teaches but my own sort of personal appropriation of that is mixed up with all my stuff so i'm still still learning uh and uh, but there are those times when in prayer uh, sometimes it's in a worship context with others. Often it'll be in the context of, of music, uh, some great hymn or well, I can't I can't ever get through great as I faithfulness because I'm so oh, Overwhelmed by God's faithfulness in my life, and so in times like that, I, I really sense God's love in a profound way.
0: Thank you, Mark. You you have been a mentor from a distance for me for a long, long time. Um, I became a lead pastor in two thousand and five. I'd already been in ministry ten years, but it was a difficult transition for me to to uh, find my own voice in my own way. But um, I think your writing particularly back then was instrumental, so this is a treat. I was looking forward to this. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and and your mind with us today. Well, thanks, it's been a privilege and I hope
1: maybe one of these days uh, we can sit down for coffee and get to know each other better. Yeah, that'd be lovely.
0: For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.